the table that the Father is spreading by the Spirit of God for us to partake of Him is solely about Jesus. Not about Detroit Church, not about Sonny Smith, not about Detroit. We love all of those things. I pray that you love me. I love you. <laughs> but it's not about me. It's not about you. It's about the Lord Jesus. And as he is exalted and made high, everything else gets perspective. Our definition of good and great is shifted to the light of him. It's a lot of talk about what, what is good, what is great even in our day and age. If you're like me, I often find myself in these debates on like debating great music or debating the greatness of an athlete or debating the golden era, right? I have that conversation often, especially recently with my sons. We've been debating a little bit. Like what is the golden era of wrestling? Now, now I, I don't want to offend my millennials and my generation Zers out here, right? But I, 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 too late, oh snap, well you gotta, forgive me. But I must, if I, if I will, just say this. I don't think it's, I don't think it's disputable that the, great, the golden era of wrestling has to be the Hulk Hogan era. I got a couple claps. Now get this, get this. What, what defines, you gotta define golden era. Right, because that'll help us get on the same page. I'm not saying it's the greatest necessarily, but I do believe that it kind of sets the tone and it sets the measure by which all other eras are kind of measured by. It's kinda, it was kind of the era where wrestling kind of came into its own, so to speak. There were many great wrestlers that went before the Hulk Hogan era, we'll call it that, right? But Hulk Hogan came along with Andre the Giant, Big John Studd. King Kong, Bundy, Junkyard Dog, feel me? <laughs> Macho Man, Randy Savage, Rickety Dreamboat, Steamboat, Rickety, Rickety Dragon, Steamboat, British Bulldogs, I can keep going. Jimmy Sloopa Fire, Snooker, hey, listen, listen, they don't do it like that anymore. Now, again, <laughs> we can have this debate, but that's based upon our definition of, of golden age, but also our definition of greatness. Let me ask you, what makes something great? What makes it great? Now, before we can understand that and before we can have these fun conversations about rankings and, and these order of lists that we like to have so many times, we got to go back a little bit. And I want to just kind of unpack for a minute this definition of great or specifically the phrase greatest of all time. Today we use the word goat. We throw it out there a lot, right? He's the goat. Matter of fact, I just said it. Called Jesus the goat, greatest of all time. Where'd that phrase come from? I hear a couple LLs. Look at this. According to Gramophobia.com, the word goat has, I'm going, oh yeah, I'm getting academic for a minute here. <laughs> Bear with me. According to According to Gramophobia.com, the word GOAT has been used in American sports since the early 1900s. All right, first it was described as a, as a derisive term, Gramophobia.com says, for a player that is responsible for a team's loss. Right? But then later it often switched to an acronym for greatest of all time. Now it was first said in more recent history 
by the, some will call the greatest boxer of all time, and I cannot argue with them, Muhammad Ali. He often referred to himself as the greatest, that's right, or even the greatest of all time. But the earliest example, get this for my historians out there, Dantes, the earliest example that we have of GOAT being used as an acronym to mean the greatest of all time is from September 1992, when Muhammad Ali's wife actually incorporated the term greatest of all time. And she did so by using the acronym G-O-A-T to consolidate the license and make it easier, easier to identify. Just a year later though, we see it being popularized, even first used in the culture in 1993 by the hip hop classic group De La Soul. I know some of y'all young heads don't know about De La Soul. <laughs> but I'm gonna give it to you right quick. They had this song called Ego Trippin' which featured Biz Marquis. And Biz had this lyric that said, I got more rhymes than Muhammad Ali. In the next verse, De La Soul, remember True Goy, the dove, the dove, and let's pray for True Goy. He's in a hospital with some heart failure issues. He's been there for a couple months, I believe. Um, but, but, but phenomenal rapper and lyricist from the, from the 90s and late 80s. He follows business rhyme with this. He says, lovely how, I met, how, lovely how I let my mind float. Lovely how I let my mind float. Now I take my expletive home because I'm the GOAT. All right? Now, that line didn't get a whole lot of fanfare right away, right? But it started, we started to see it being used more and more in specifically the hip hop culture. And then in the year 2000, LL Cool J sealed the acronym as an everyday term in our lexicon when he named his eighth studio album, Greatest of All Time or The GOAT. Now today, it's a word used all the time. Not just by rappers, we see sports journalists using it, commentators using it, teachers using it. I've heard, news, I've heard newscasters use the term. But what do we mean when we say the greatest of all time? And what is it that we are actually debating? So again, I ask you, what makes something great? Now, I think it's fair to say what makes something great has to be measured by the goal that that thing is trying to achieve, the goal that is trying to be reached. This is the idea that we see in Philippians chapter three. So for those who are, who are just joining us today, again, we welcome you. We've been in the book of Philippians for the last uh, month and a half or so, and uh, we're gonna be here uh, for a few more weeks. And today we're in Philippians chapter three. So we're gonna wove this, this teaching series we've been in into the, 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 the resurrection message of today, right? But Paul is, is trying to describe for them what the goal is for his life and what it should be for them. Follow me. What the goal is for his life and what it should be for them and what it should be for Christians and, and, and those who are his readers. And he goes on to teach them how we can achieve said goal. So I want you to meet me in Philippians chapter 3. We're going to read from verse 17 to 21. Philippians 3, 17 to 21. And we, we want to honor, one of the ways we honor the Lord, one of the ways we worship is how we pay attention to Scripture, how we reverence and honor the Lord speaking through the Scriptures. Right, so we're going to read a few different passages today. And I want to um, encourage you just to really 
uh, allow the Spirit of God to illuminate God's Word. Amen. Philippians chapter 3, 17. If you got it, just say, I got it. All right, let's get it. Paul says, brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the pattern that you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and tell you, even now, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Wow. Then he says, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Get this. Then he says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus the Christ. The GOAT, my interpretation. The Lord Jesus the Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power which enables him even to subject all things to himself. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for all that has been said and demonstrated here in our gathering. God, we pray that you would be exalted and lifted up, not man, not flesh, not me. Um, it's about you. I pray that you will illuminate hearts and by your spirit cause us to see you, help us to see you, help us to live in the freedom of the resurrection, not just today, but every day in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Family, you're definition of greatness matters. It matters. What you revere as something that is iconic, it matters to God. But it also matters to how you live. It matters to how you think about your values and the things that are important to you in life. It helps to kind of identify your, your standards. It reveals the things that are important to you, right? If I was to scan the room, we would all have different things maybe that, that are specifically important to us. And some of those things help to, us to really see what is what has significance or great significance to us in our lives. And Paul starts out this section here by trying to help his initial readers, but also us, the readers some 2,000 years later, help us understand that who we follow matters. Who we follow matters. Who you hang out with matters. Who you esteem and put on a high level, it matters. And this we see is one of the reoccurring themes in the book of Philippians. First, Paul points to himself, right, in Philippians chapter 2, when he says to, if you can follow me, right? He says this throughout some of his writings, and it's never to bring attention to himself. He's not trying to put himself on a pedestal. He says, follow me as I follow Christ. Then later on in that same chapter in Philippians 2, he's pointing to other people, specifically Timothy and Epaphroditus. And he's saying, hey, these, these guys are great examples as well. And then he points to the ultimate example, the ultimate icon in Jesus in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Now get this. All of those examples he gave had one thing in common. Their own comfort was not their priority. There was, there, there was nothing more important to them than living for the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he uses the Lord Jesus Christ as the example, we know that there was nothing more important to Jesus than obeying his Father. 
That's the example that Paul is saying, yo, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. That's the example. Paul is urging his audience to, like, there's a model for you to imitate. Paul says, first follow me, not because he thought he was the goat, no. Right? Paul, matter of fact, was a, a, an example primarily because he knew who he was and he knew who he was not. He often was very open about his brokenness. I love this about the scriptures. The scriptures don't sanitize Paul's failures from us. We see a lot of his triumphs. We see throughout history the impact that he, he had on, on, on culture on all of the world really, on countries around the world, right? But it also helps us understand that he wanted them to follow him because he knew that he himself was an imperfect sinner that was pursuing the goal of Christ-likeness. What's your overall goal today? What is the goal of the person who has placed faith in Jesus? Is it just to avoid hell? That's a, that's a question for you to kind of ponder on a little bit and ask yourself. Paul wants them to know that there is a goal. And, and, and he unpacks this in just a few verses earlier. And Dave took us into this passage last week and did a great job. But there is a calling. There is a goal. And the, the goal is pursuing that calling of following Jesus. That's the ultimate goal. And everything else, every other sub-goal has to support that goal. Paul was a man like us. We see in Acts chapter 23 where Paul actually responds in anger and outrage. And just a couple of verses later, he actually apologizes, he repents, but he's responding to the high priest for how they were treating him. Paul goes on to talk about other places where, that he struggled with pride and that the Lord actually gave him a thorn in the flesh. And 30 years into his ministry, Paul is still saying and thinking of himself as the chief among sinners. So before any of us think that this man wanted to place himself on a pedestal so that people could worship him, that's not the case. Matter of fact, had Paul been perfect, he would not have been as accessible to us. Please hear what I'm saying here. As we are following Christ, part of the calling for us is to have those who are also following us. But get this, they're not following us because we are doing everything necessarily to a T. What God is looking for are hearts that have surrendered to him. That people who know their limitations... That people who know that they are jacked up from the flow up. Amen. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't continue to strive. It doesn't mean that we don't take the, the Christian disciplines seriously. We do, right? But we aren't, like we don't do those things for God's approval. Hmm. What God is looking for is a pure heart. So Paul is saying, we've lived this out before you. Here are people to follow. Now, some of us, in our pride, I'm going to call it out for a minute and I'll join myself in that number as well. We can easily get on the bandwagon. Well, I don't, I'm not following people. I'm following God. <laughs> that is not the narrative we see in the scriptures. In the scriptures, we see a, a clear calling. Follow me as I follow Christ. 
What that says for us is you have a responsibility to be following someone who is following Christ, but also to be leading someone as you follow someone who is following Christ. What that means is God has not created us to live on an island or to make stuff up and do it just because it feels good to us. We've been created together to bear the image of Christ. I love how Meg brought out a few weeks ago when the Bible says to work out our salvation, our own salvation. The pronouns there are, are in the plural. It means we, we work these things out together, not in isolation. Amen. What that means is greatness is not just taught, it's caught. Paul is saying, I'm not just writing this to you to give you head knowledge and information. I've lived this out before you. We see in the passionate exchange that, that Luke writes about in Acts chapter 20 where Paul is with the Ephesian elders and he's like, yo, you've seen how I've lived before you. You've seen how I've prayed. You've seen how I've sacrificed and how I've battled. And they're, sitting, they're standing there on this island crying with one another. What a beautiful picture. <sighs> I believe that our community, the calling to be together, has possibly in our lifetime never been fought more than in the last two years. Many find themselves wrestling with feelings of isolation, not being seen, not being heard. And we have to take responsibility in that. Amen. I wish I could labor a little bit more there, but I got to move on because of time. It's important to be in community so that you can learn from others who God has, has allowed to, to mature in some areas. What I mean by that is, there are no perfect Christians around us, right? So I want to relieve the pressure, first of all, of being right in every area. But pay attention to those who maybe is kind of killing it in their marriage, right? Or pay attention to those who maybe is a great example in like how to be faithful in their career, how to seek the Lord, how to like be faithful in a marketplace kind of sense. Look around your community and say, who can I follow who's being faithful even in the stewardship of their finances? Who is, is killing the game when it comes to health and fitness? Because we know that these bodies, while they're temporary, like we want to be faithful with the bodies that God has given us while they may have a time clock on them, right? We don't want to just be out here clowning, eating whatever. And I'm not getting no amens on that part. <laughs> amen. I'm learning. Amen. But that's important to, to look around you and say who is setting a godly example and get close to them as close as they will allow you to get to them. This is the very practical example that we see in the church. We have to push past some of the, the difficulties of proximity and the busyness of, the, of our, our schedules in the 24-7 cycle of always working, always being busy doing something where the community around us is, is drying up. Mm, God has called us to be a part of one another. Mm. I encourage you to find those who've been captured by the cross, captured by the lordship of, of Jesus, those who recognize what the real goal is in following Jesus. Listen, you can read all the books you want. You can listen to all the great podcasts you want. You can follow the most inspirational Twitter accounts that you want. But we still need to be trained by living people who are walking around us. Examples in the faith. Paul says, pay attention to them. Follow them. The example that you have in us, I'm right here. Follow us. I'm tempted to call out some names right now, but I don't want to get in trouble. But I'm going to do it anyway. 
Butlers, Don and Mary, can you just stand up for, for a minute? <laughs> stand up, please. Listen, this is not about exalting flesh, but an example of a godly marriage following, listen, follow them as they follow Jesus. Follow them as they follow Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen. Pastor Flynn, stand up, sir. And Rhonda, another amazing couple, newer to our church. But, but solid and secure and strong in their understanding of the scriptures, the application of the scriptures, and Rhonda, for how to use your temple, right, to glorify the Lord. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Thank you for being here. I, I got to shout out my own wife, Sharita. Stand up. So many ways. So many ways. But a woman who has a heart for God, a woman who God has, has placed in the marketplace, and God has been opening crazy doors. She's, she's seen and, and encountered uh, opposition. For many different reasons. We know ultimately it's spiritual, but sometimes because she's young, she's black. <laughs> Something she's younger than she is, and that ain't number God's grace. Amen. Amen. But she's powerful, and God's used her. Followable. I can go on and on about her. Ellington, stand up. Young people. Young people. Young people. Young people. Young people. Follow this young man. Matter of fact, older people. A godly example on how to surrender to him and how to use, allow the word of God to form and craft our reasonings and our, and our thoughts about God and our thoughts about the world. He's faithful in his discipline, his Christian disciplines on how to serve God. Amen. Where's Krista at? Krista. Krista, Krista. Where's Krista? Back there. Right your hand. She was up here singing. Yo, if you are an artist and you are really struggling and praying about how do I use my gift to glorify God, follow her as she follows Jesus. I can go on and on. Where are my single folk at? Sierra. Wave your hand, Sierra. A young woman who has dedicated her life to the goodness of God. A heart for God, a worshiper, an intercessor. I could keep going on and on because God has blessed us as a community. But the point that I really want to bring out here is we belong to one another. And we are called to follow one another. Because none of us have it all, right? There's a portion that you have. There's a portion that I have. We are to walk together as we are following him. Now let me make this clear. As only as we are following him. If we get off the course of following him, then we need to say, pause, okay, let's have a conversation. Amen, let's come together. Let's see what the word of God says. Let's see how we can support our brother or our sister. But this is the kind of community that God has called us to, again, get as close to them as possible. But hear this, it is your responsibility to find people that can disciple you. The church, we want to be, we want to do a better job of having a, a, a plan and programs and a, a, a clear strategy for discipleship. There's a, a place for that. But ultimately, the responsibility is on you as a person not to just find somebody, but also find someone who you can disciple. The sad thing here is we often tend not to want to follow anyone at all, or we put people on a pedestal. And we become idol worshipers. When we talk about the word icon and the history of this word, there's a long history that I really don't have time to get into. But we see it displayed in the tradition of sacred art in the church, often referred to as iconography. Iconography. This word is taken from the word icon, as you can imagine, which meant a sacred representation of something greater, a sacred representation of something greater. And this speaks to a period in time 
where there were pieces of art that were designed very, very intricately in different layers, and they were used to represent those who had reached what the church called sainthood, what the church had called sainthood. Even in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, they referred to these icons as windows into heaven, windows into heaven. And tradition even teaches us that the first uh, iconographer, if you will, was a man named Luke, the author of the book of Luke, we're going to read from in a minute here, and also the author of the book of Acts that I just referenced. Church history says he was actually the first one and did at least five different icons. But get this, somewhere along the way, things start to go off rails and become a little weird. Matter of fact, some of the church fathers even taught that the icons could be prayed to or that when, you, when they were studying, these icons would come alive and they would start to glow and that God was actually in them. Some of them even taught that the icons were filled with the Holy Spirit. By the time the 7th and 8th centuries came along, the, the, there's another group that kind of rose called the Iconoclasts or the icon clashers. And they became suspicious of how any sacred art could represent God. Any sacred art as a, of a human could be deified. They had a problem with that. And they started destroying these icons and these images. We also see, and I know there's a lot more here that I, 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 I'm leaving out, but I want to give you the big picture of the, you know, the, the history of this word and even the etymology of the word icon. The word icon comes from the Greek word by the same name, icon, spelled E-I-K-O-N, and it means image, likeness, form, and appearance. The word actually first appears in Hebrew form in Genesis 1:26, with the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit declare, let us make man in our icon. Icon. The scripture is going to teach us that we were made to be image bearers. We were made to be icons, but smaller icons revealing his glory, revealing his image. So we see through the canon of scripture that these religious images could really reveal nothing of substance when it comes to Yahweh's nature. That the only ones that could be called made in the image of God were humans. Were humans. Us. Paul recognizes this virtue of, of, of creation and humanity when he says that we are the image of the glory of God. However, because of sin, that image has been blurred it has been marred hmm. so what it takes is union and communion with christ for that image to once again be restored in its fullest stature ah, that's what the scripture means in second corinthians chapter 3 verse 18 when paul writes he says we are being transformed into the same image icon from one degree of glory to another for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. What he's saying is, the Spirit of God is doing the transformation in us from glory to glory, designing us to the Lord's image. Wow, now get this. This is a present transformation. This is something, if you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, this is happening now. God is doing it, and who's doing it specifically? The Holy Spirit, right? But Paul, in Philippians 3, Let's us in on another transformation that will happen down the line. 
a future icon, if you were, a future image bearing. Let's go back to Philippians 3, verse 18. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Wow. I wish I had time, family, to really unpack this because what we are seeing here is, is this emotive like energy, this passionate communication from Paul. He says they're walking as enemies of the cross of Christ, I meaning they're setting the wrong example. There are many, he says. These are not pictures of those who are outside of the faith. These are those who have on the facade of those who are in the faith, meaning these are those who, who declare to be Christians. These are those who, who claim to profess faith in Christ. He says, but they're evil like their master, Satan, who's a deceiver. He says, they're dis they've disguised themselves as, as messengers of the Lord Jesus. They, they disguise themselves as, as representations of Jesus, being in the likeness of Jesus. However, their hearts are far from them. They were part of the church. They may have been leaders in the church. They may have been those in the pulpit. Those serving, volunteering, those singing, those doing whatever. None of us are exempt. None of us. Each person, listen, some of you may have an anointing to preach, to declare, to communicate the gospel, but none of us have a special anointing to live it out. We all got the same Holy Ghost. Amen? Paul is saying, yo, like, beware. There are those who are among you who've made themselves, themselves enemies of the cross of Christ. Enemies of the cross of Christ, they don't talk about the cross as their greatest boast. They talk about themselves. They talk about their own desires. They talk about the things that they want to live for to achieve their own personal happiness. Uh, here's what he says about them in verse 19. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with their minds set on earthly things. I'm going to say it again. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame and their minds set on earthly things. This is a wake-up call for us. If you consider yourself to be in the faith, let's see. Examine your own self, right? I got to examine my own heart. Father, is this me? Now, he, he first wants to make it really clear, right? They're in his destruction. Let's be real clear. The word there for end is the Greek word teleos. It refers to ultimate destiny. He says their ultimate destiny will be eternal destruction, Whew. which means punishment and torment. That's a hard word. Then he says their God is their stomach. That word their stomach is not just like their physical anatomy, right? It speaks to their appetites. He said they serve their lustful appetites. They live to please their own selves. This speaks to the unstrained sexual desires fleshly bodily desires in other words they do what they want to do when they want to do it how they want to do it enemies of the cross of Christ hmm. whatever satisfies them that's what brings them satisfaction enemies of the cross of Christ then he says their glory is in their shame meaning they they like to show off these things <laughs> they show off thank you they show off their brokenness they're proud of the fact that, that they're living how they want to live for their own glory. They're proud of that. They boast in that. They enjoy and they celebrate what, is, what should be 
offensive to God in their hearts. Family, this is the most extreme form of wickedness. And Paul wraps that verse up and says, they're focused on earthly things. Their minds are set on earthly things. They got excited about things of this earth. I want to challenge you to know that we're passing through here. We're here, but we're passing through. We don't belong here. So do a check in your mind. Am I, like, am I overly adjusted to like this present life? Do I care more about the things that are happening on my day-to-day? Do I care more about what's in my bank account or how I'm even feeling in my physical body or the natural earthly relationships that I have and my own personal happiness more than the goal, which is the call of following Jesus? Oh, man. Now, before I move on, get this. Paul is shedding tears over them. Like, he's not despising them he's not using words that 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 like you know can can put him above them necessarily he's grieved by it when we see this being played out in the world around us it should grieve us how do are we responding to these enemies of the cross if it's not offending us then perhaps we are more like them than we should be god help us this is a hard word i'm just giving you the bible Remember the proverb that says, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Proverbs 13, 20. Listen, don't become a fool by observing and following the ways of foolish people. Find an example of those who are walking the way of following the cross of Christ. Follow them because who you follow matters. Verse 20, Paul throws a little seasoning in this hard word when he says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, glory to God, hallelujah. We aren't just waiting in vain. Come on, we're not waiting for an event, we're waiting for a person. Let's go, let's go. It's not just about the rapture. It's not just about heaven as as an immaterial place. No, it's about Jesus. The picture of the glory of the Father. Ah, yes. And, and for those who, are, who have trusted in him and placed faith in him, we can experience that to a degree now. Paul goes on to give us this picture, but we're going to experience the fullness of that later. Now get this. Philippi was a Roman colony, right? It wasn't in Rome proper, but it was a Rome colony. It was kind of looked at as a little Rome, so to speak. So when people visited Philippi, it reminded them of Rome. (laughs) They're like, oh, this reminds me, this reminds me of Rome. Like if it was in Rome proper, you wouldn't necessarily say that because you're in Rome. If you go outside of the geographical boundaries of Rome and you see certain things that remind you of Rome, you say, oh, this reminds me of Rome. Especially if you call Rome home. Get this. If our citizenship is in heaven, Shouldn't how we behave remind people of heaven? We're not there in totality yet, right? We're not there yet, but how we treat people should remind people of heaven. How we love people, oh, it reminds me of heaven. How we serve the poor, serve the lost, reminds me of heaven. How we lay down our lives, reminds me of heaven. So maybe God's not trying to get us to heaven as much as he's trying to get heaven into us so that we can represent him here in Detroit. Uh, That's the call of following Jesus. 
Listen, if your citizenship is based in this world, then it makes sense to live according to the ways of the world which are walking as an enemy of the cross of Christ. But if that's not you, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus, your citizenship is found where? In heaven. So it does not make sense to walk according to the ways of the world. Family, when we go outside of him to form our identities, we actually engage in idolatry. And we limit ourselves by being, to being an enemy of the cross of Christ. Oh, I got to move on. I wish I could labor there a little bit longer. Verse 20. And from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus the Christ. Look at this. The focus is not on self. The focus is on the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Savior? Hear this, he's Savior of the world, right? But not everybody can call him Lord. Everyone in this room can call him Savior. But for everyone to call him Lord, the word Lord means master, right? Indicates that I'm following him. I'm following his ways. Paul tells us that, th that this really is the, is the only way that we can live out the values of the kingdom. We were talking about values earlier, right? The things that are important to us and what it means to be great. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you must follow Jesus. This is how we await heaven's Lord by our hearts crying out, awaiting the Lord Jesus the Christ. Right, Paul wants them to know, yes, Caesar isn't Lord. Caesar could think he's Lord. Caesar could put his icon on a coin and get people to worship him. Right? Caesar can make people call him Savior, but he's not Lord. And Paul draws the line of demarcation a few verses earlier when he says this. One thing that I do in pursuing the goal, he says, one thing that I do, he reduces the Christian life to simply this. One objective, following the Lord Jesus. Following his example. <sighs> Family. If we're going to glorify God, we can only do so to the degree that we're following him. Please hear that. It, I'm not trying to wow you or get deep. We need a word that's going to get in our hearts and get in the crevices of who we are and challenge us when we leave here today. Amen? We can sing, we can shout, we can jump up that he is risen, and he is. And because he's risen, we're risen, right? But what does that mean for us? How does that change and affect our lives when we leave here today? Ah. <sighs> Paul says, the Lord Jesus the Christ in verse 21, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Yo, this is the most encouraging news for us who are believers in Jesus. Like what we have right now, this is as bad as it gets. This is the worst that it gets because soon we will see him and soon these physical bodies will be transformed. Remember Paul, previously in 2 Corinthians, we referenced chapter 3, talks about the present transformation that is happening, being made into his image day by day. But here is a future transformation where we will in fullness look like him. Oh, Christ will totally transform the bodies of all believers to make them fit for heaven. That means that your body one day, if you place faith in Jesus, is going to fit a whole new schematic. It's going to be refashioned. Redesign, glory to God. Christ will change the present body of our humble state into conformity, the body of his glory. 
1 Corinthians 15, 49. And just as we've been born the image of the man of dust, we will also bear the image of the heavenly man. Glory to God. 1 John 3, 2 and 3 says, Dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. So again, salvation involves much more than deliverance from hell. God's ultimate goal in redeeming us as believers is to transform our bodies into his image. Now get this, he says, by the power which enables him even to subject all things to himself. Wow, the Greek word there for subject means to arrange in order of rank. To arrange in order of rank. Jesus has that power when he rose from the grave. And he will transform our lowly bodies to be like his body by the power which enables him now to subject all things, not some things. So the arrangement of all of creation, the stars, the universes, all of it is, is ranked in order according to him. So whatever lists in your mind that you have of the GOAT, what's the greatest event in human history? What's the greatest thing in, 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 in nature? <laughs> right, we were talking earlier about artists and different expressions of, of greatness. Jesus is saying here, what Paul is saying is that Jesus is the greatest. <laughs> He's the icon of icons. He is the goat. He went from being the scapegoat to the ultimate goat, the greatest of all time. This is what he's done. Now I'm rapping with this. The musicians can come on up. Oh, glory to God. I want to read from Luke chapter 24. And we're going to see the event that changed the course of all of human history. Luke, we referenced earlier, is writing. Luke was a doctor as well as a historian, and tradition even says that he was an artist. Luke writes in verse one, but on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And then they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? And they remembered his words and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Wow. Wow. <laughs> did you catch that? If, if that's not a picture of today and the battle of the sexes, as it were, I love how the Holy Spirit inserts these women to be the first responders, if you will. And they don't, they, they approach him and they believe and they, they, maybe they're having a hard time articulating what they're seeing, but they're there. And they, they want to take the message and tell the brothers. And the brothers ain't trying to hear it. The brothers are rustling like, all right, here we go again. Are you sure? Nah. 
I don't want to put it off on them, amen, brothers? <laughs> because many times, let's be honest, we all struggle with faith. We struggle with doubt. We struggle with being and believing something that we cannot see with our natural physical eyes. Verse 13 says, but Peter rose. Peter ran to the tomb and stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves. And he went home marveling. That word there marveling is like an astonishment. He's still wrestling with what he had just saw. Maybe today you're, you're here and you're wrestling with the events of your life. You're wrestling with the things that you're seeing on your block, the things you're seeing in your marriage, the things you're seeing in your relationship. And maybe you, you want to believe that Jesus is not in the tomb anymore. You want to believe that he is truly indeed, but nothing that you're seeing is lining up with that. I want to encourage you today. As the passage goes on, in verse 13, Jesus does not leave the wanderers to figure it out by themselves. He joins them in their journey. He joins them even in their doubt, even in their obscurity. Verse 13 says that very day, this is Easter Sunday. This is what we call Resurrection Sunday. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But it says their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Why were their eyes kept? We don't specifically know why explicitly, but there are some conclusions that we could draw. Possibly these are brothers that didn't listen to the women. <laughs> so they've had the seed of doubt already planted in their hearts and they're not ready to respond to him. And he says to them, what is this conversation you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Like, yo, have you not, have you not heard? They say, are you, not the, are you the only visitor to, to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? Jesus says to them one thing. <laughs> not because he didn't know. Listen, when God asks questions, it's not because he's trying to get an answer. He's trying to help you reveal something in us. He says, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word, and word before God and all the people. Perhaps they didn't clearly see him because they were still seeing Jesus as just a prophet. They were seeing Jesus as just a man with a good message, a good dude, but not as God who has subjected all things to himself. Not as the risen King of kings, Lord of lords. How do you see him today? They go on in verse 22. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they personally didn't see. What Jesus does, and I won't read the whole passage, Jesus keeps walking with them and he keeps speaking into and reaching into their curiosity and he even challenges them to pay attention to what has already been said to them. I want to encourage you this, is here, you, this is you here today. Just pay attention to the events of your life. Pay attention to the timing that maybe at one point in time you may have looked at as a coincidence. 
but I want you to know that God is sovereign in all of the affairs of our lives. And he uses these things, the good, the bad, the ugly, the mountaintops, or also the valleys, the triumphs and the tragedies to reveal his nature and his ultimate love for us. And Jesus began to continue to preach them. Verse 28 says, so they drew near to the village which they were going. And he acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it is toward evening. And the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. I get this at verse 30. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it. And he gave it to them. Wow. We're going to share in a moment of communion right now. I'm going to ask the ushers to come and they're going to pass out the communion elements. We're going to share in this moment similar to what we see here in Luke 24. But hear this. Something unique happens here. When the guest of honor becomes the host and he starts preparing the table. And he starts to serve them. And something happens when he serves them. Verse 31 says, And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Then he vanished from their sight. Oh, this is what some theologians call a divine passive. It's God who is enabling, working behind the scenes for them to see him, for them to receive him. Then they respond by saying to one another, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened us up to the scriptures? And they arose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed. He has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Father, I pray that through this we remember the work of the cross. We will partake the body, the bread, the blood representing representative wine of Jesus. Father, I pray that our eyes will be opened even further to who you are. The sacrifice, Father, that you made available to us through your son, that we would see Jesus. Glory to God. Thank you, Father. Listen, if you are here today, Maybe you've never partaken of communion in this way. Or maybe you have, but you cannot in good faith call yourself a follower of Jesus. Listen, sometimes we can be guilty of using all kind of terms. Even the word Christian is a, is a term that was kind of given to us by outsiders, so to speak. Right? So I'm using my words very carefully here. The call is for us to be followers of Jesus. And if you've never done that, I want to give you an opportunity to simply acknowledge him as not just Savior, but as Lord. I know we're passing the elements, but if you could please just hear this, hear this invitation. If this is you today, I want to invite you into a community of people who aren't here to judge the outsiders, to judge the world because of all the things they're doing wrong. We are a community of those who are broken 
We are a community of those who over and over and over again have not gotten it right. I know the intimate stories of many of those sitting in the room. I can tell of some of their failures and mess ups, but I can tell of mine even better. I can tell you how I've rejected God, how I've put on the mask of religion to make myself look better in front of people, yet on the inside, in my heart, was far from God. I can tell you how I've been one like Paul has described as an enemy of the cross. Where my, my God was my stomach, my God was my appetites. And how I gloried in my shame. So I don't want you to take this approach like I gotta get ready to clean myself up first and then I'll decide to follow Jesus. That's not how this works. Matter of fact, if we can clean our own selves up, why do we need to come to him in the first place? Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord. Jesus encounters us in the breaking of the bread. If you have your elements, I'm going to ask you to take the wafer that is representative of the bread here. We're going to partake in a second here. Those few of those who are still getting elements ready. If you are here today and you maybe cannot call yourself presently a follower of Jesus, but you, as a response to God and what God has been saying throughout this message today, God is moving on your heart to respond to Him, to say yes to Him, not just as Savior but as Lord. I want to ask you to do something pretty bold. I'm going to ask you to do something that may cause you to stand out a little bit. This is not to put the spotlight on you. It's not to embarrass you in any kind of way. It's not to create even a hype moment. But it's simply a public acknowledgement. Jesus, I don't care who's looking. I don't care what opinions of people may be about me. I want to follow you. If you are here today, you want to give your life to Jesus, I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand. Anybody in the room? I see one hand there. Amen. Glory to God. Thank you, Jesus. That's my sister. My sister. I met her on a soccer field of our kids, praise God. Father, I thank you for the work that you are doing in her life, Father. In the name of, I saw another hand over here. Amen, brother, bless you. I don't know your name, but man, I welcome you, amen, not just to this physical gathering, but to the community of Christ, amen. Bless you, brother. Thank you, Father. Anybody else in the room? Anybody else in the room? Listen, again, I'm not trying to make a skeptical here. This is not a marketing pitch, but we want to celebrate because all of heaven celebrates when just one person decides to follow Jesus. Anybody else here in the room? Maybe you've done it in the past, but the Lord is kind of moving on your heart like, you know what, I've actually been an enemy of the cross of Christ. Maybe that's you today and you want to recommit yourself. If you're in the room, just kind of wave your hand. Amen, my sister, Courtney, blessings. Amen, amen. God is transforming hearts even now. Anybody else in the room? God is doing that now. Listen, when we acknowledge this publicly, it just stirs up the faith in the hearts of others who may be witnesses and looking on. Amen, again, this is not like some pitch or marketing ploy. No, but God be glorified. Listen, he's the only one that can transform. Amen. He's the only one that can do it. Come on. A good sermon can't do it. A good band, a good song cannot do it. A podcast can't do it. Glory to God. Amen. If you've made that public acknowledgement, before we partake of communion, I want to first say, I thank you for the work of Jesus, your perfect son, 
who came to earth, lived among us, and died for the sin of humanity, including mine. I believe that the Lord Jesus came along to die for our sin. And I receive him as my master and my eternal savior. Father, thank you for saving me. Father, thank you for transforming me. Father, thanking me. Thank you for helping me live a life for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Detroit Church Podcast. We'd love you to subscribe, like, and rate. And if you're not already, you can follow us on social media by searching for Detroit Church.